Welcome to the Catastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. I am Joel Harrison, joined as always here by my co-host David Taylor. In fact, this is the first time I think we're recording together in probably this, this year? year. No, we did one. We did year. one at the start. I can actually stare into your eyes. Stop it. You know I don't like eye contact. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Emotions are too much. I'm an emotional person, as you know, David. Look, I've been thinking about many things, but one thing I've been thinking about is crazy church life and what we might call stories from the days of fundamentalism. So have I ever told you about the church I was part of as a kid um, in which the minister was being criticised and so he decided to stand up and give a sermon. And sermons in this context, you know, we're talking an hour sort yeah. of thing, right? A sermon in which he uh, attacked all his critics and compared himself to Noah <laughs> and said he is the modern-day Noah yeah. and no one understands him. But his woman. Yeah. I think we left. <laughs> <laughs> was your dad... Was this, are you talking about your father? <laughs> it was my dad saying he's Noah. <laughs> As much as I'd walk out of my father's sermon, sure. No, actually, I think my dad was the critic. Oh, right. And so it was kind of like a sermon directed at our family, which is just hilarious. But anyway, so yeah, he was the, he was a modern day Noah. And he, and he went on for about an hour about how basically no one understands him but himself. Right. Yeah. So I was just thinking, what what's the what's sort of the craziest of, of that nature you think you've encountered? Um, <laughs> I, I, I think, so our traditions are very different. I come from kind of a reformed background. Um, I think the most full on one was, uh, I went to a, a, so in, in Sydney, um, our kind of public liturgy, uh, as evangelicals, reformed evangelicals is to go to Katoomba to listen to Bible talks, mm. um, for conferences. So it is, it is going to the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Literally going to a mountain. I have told you this out when I arrived in Australia and everyone kept going on about Katoomba. Yeah. And Katoomba. I was like, Katoomba. Oh, what? I, Katoomba, Katoomba. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, and it was like, it was, it was, they spoke of it in these like reverential tones, right? Like yeah. it was actually Moses going up to receive the tablet yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So, and the big one would be men's is men's convention. There's a big men's always, convention. Always important men's um, conventions uh, where everyone uh, is is super performative uh, in their masculinity. Uh, and then there's Easter convention as and uh, all sorts of big ones. Anyway, we went to an Easter convention, uh, and there was uh, quite a young speaker for Easter convention speaking there, and the topic was on doubt and depression uh, in the Christian life. And he got up and he he kind of said, "I've got three points." One of them was just read your Bible, like which is, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but no, that's not it. Uh, it's not an exaggeration. The other one was try not to mope around. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Maybe put on a little bit of lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> that's verbatim. And I was running a young young adults ministry at the time and uh, most of the young women in my, in my group had some sort of kind of clinical depression <laughs> and there was a lot of storming out at <laughs> different points during that. That was, that was actually the... A very formative talk for me because that was when I realized this is not my people. <laughs> yeah, well, this this could I, be. I think that was probably my last convention I went to. Yeah, so in my context, I mean, it, it is. It just pointed to how. So I come from, as we've said before, uh, a Pentecostal background in which 
you can be very megalomaniacal um, because you aren't you aren't accountable to anyone. Yeah. Um, there's the the local church uh, is the emphasis. Yeah, I mean, we had that going on as well. Yeah, but this is a fascinating thing I find. In, we're in very congregationalist. City. I find that, yeah, okay, I was going to say in the Anglican context, I remember being at Synod in which there was talk about the bishop coming and maybe having a conversation with an incumbent rector yeah. about moving on, right? Yeah. Because somebody's been there too long or they're just not thriving yeah. or whatever, or there's reasons to, for the bishop to say that. And all these rectors got up in arms about, you know, their rights saying, you know, this is my incumbency. It's mine. It belongs to me. And the idea that a bishop would actually come and suggest they move on was seen as some sort of anathema. But anyway, so the reason why, um, I mean, we're thinking about this sort of thing is because um, in this uh, conversation today, we're, we wanted to talk about um, narcissism in the church and then narcissism as a kind of cultural malaise or cultural infection or something wrong in the culture. If you can hear a, uh, a leaf blower in the background, that's because we live in Sydney and everyone is obsessed with leaf blowers. Anyway, um, so we're going to talk about narcissism in the church and then narcissism into the culture and so on, right? And um, we're thinking about this for a few reasons, just because it's a, it's an interesting thing to think through for a cultural prism. But also Dave himself is is studying to, as was well, almost completed, haven't you? Um, your have, supervision. Now You're now completed to, now he's a real boy. He can um, super. He can. He's he's becoming a counselor, in which part of his focus is going to be on people who have experienced hardship, crisis, um, um, you know, problems and potential abuse and so on within church contexts, right? And helping people think through that, um, uh, whether that current or uh, in the past and so on. So Dave's been reading some fascinating books about narcissism and. And he's been just discussing them with me. And I thought this is just such an interesting topic to bring to the fore. So maybe we begin, Dave, by... Um, because what is fascinating, when I hear narcissism, I actually, originally, I would have thought that megalomaniacal, mm. right? Yeah. And I think that person was a narcissist, yeah. even on the way you all define it. But, you know, that idea of, like, you just love yourself too much. Yeah. Whereas in what Dave's been developing, telling me about, is actually, it's much more complicated, much more interesting and fascinating. So, narcissism, David, as he's some, for some reason drawing a picture of me yeah. with arrows going <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> It's like, am I being attacked by his dude? <laughs> While I'm talking, people, he's doodling. Are there arrows firing at my face? Now, are they arrows pointing at ideas? Or are they like, is this an assault upon me? I don't know. Anyway, let's go on to the point. So, yeah. It's interesting that you are the reference point there, uh, Joel. You're, I'm right in front of you and you're drawing a man with glasses and a beard. You're ridiculous. Okay, so, all right. So, narcissism, What what is it? Uh, so, narcissism, it's, uh, yeah, as you said, it was, um, we often think about it as someone that has a perhaps overinflated self-love. Um, and we might think of particularly um, uh, verbose public figures. So, Donald Trump is someone that we'd all talk about as a narcissist and maybe perhaps rightly so uh, and things like that. But that can kind of... Um, uh, downplay the subtlety and complexity of, of narcissism. When we're talking about narcissism, we can be talking about a couple of things. We can be talking about someone that sits on a spectrum um, who has kind of narcissistic traits. And these narcissistic traits can be malignant and incredibly toxic, uh, or they can be relatively benign. And sometimes people who are good leaders um, and or good managers and things like that can have narcissistic uh, traits, but they're actually um, benign and and... Um, and uh, maybe even necessary for a particular role. We'll get into that a bit later. 
Um, but as you move along the spectrum, things uh, become much more dire. And then we end up with, as well uh, with what's called a narcissistic personality disorder, which is something completely different, um, which is something, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm a counsellor and I'm a psychologist and that requires actually um, uh, kind of some actual uh, testing in order to have it. But a narcissistic personality disorder is something that kind of affects about one uh, to 2% of the population, whereas the narcissist people who are fall onto the narcissistic kind of spectrum. Uh, there's different kind of clusters um, uh, of personality traits that uh, are associated with that. That's probably 5 to 7% of the population, 5% um, of females, 7% of males. Um, so males are slightly more narcissistic, who would have thought? <laughs> than, uh, than, than, uh, yeah, than we're females. number one. <laughs> um, so what, what are we talking about when we're talking about narcissism? Well, we're talking about uh, an inflated or grandiose uh, self-image. Um, we're also talking about uh, that in, in... So it's not just thinking highly of yourself, and that's something I'm going to stress throughout this. I think that at the heart of narcissism is, is a deep internal emptiness. There's a, there's a deep um, hollowness at the heart of every narcissist. And so it's not that the, the self is something that's being loved. It, there's actually something else that's being loved, and I would call that... Um, the persona or the mask that, that the person presents, the image that the person presents, that is the thing that is being identified with and that is the thing that is being adored and, and demanded that others adore as well. So when we say a grandiose self-image, we, we're talking not necessarily about the self itself, we're talking about something quite differently, different. And that is in combination with things like a lack of empathy. So with a narcissist, um, uh, a particularly malignant narcissist, you'll find an inability uh, to identify with the feelings of another person. So um, it, they won't identify, they won't necessarily see you feeling sad and feel sad themselves and certainly not be able to identify your feelings with actions that they've done uh, or of the, they've performed. So if, if you've hurt, if, if they hurt you and see you visibly distressed, they won't identify with those feelings. Um, and then you've got general, uh, then, then things going to get a bit more complicated. So you, you have different forms of narcissism. There's the classic narcissist that we all identify with, the grandiose narcissist, which is a specific type of narcissist. And that is the kind of extroverted, dominant, attention-seeking individual. Uh, the person that needs to always have the last word, that needs to be the smartest, the strongest, the most attractive person in the room. Uh, that's the grandiose narcissist. And that's something that we, um, we identify with kind of a particularly um, narcissistic leaders within organizations, churches being one. And we'll talk a bit how that presents itself in church later on. But then we have a more subtle form of narcissism, which is the vulnerable narcissist. And a vulnerable narcissist could actually be quite shy and reserved and quiet. They can also be incredibly self-deprecating. Um, but the th and and this and you might you might find yourself kind of relating to this because uh, this is a type of narcissism that often goes underlooked, uh, 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 overlooked. But uh, this person will they'll, they'll be self-deprecating. But in being self-deprecating, everything gets related to the self still. It's all about them. And, and even when they're, when they're being down on themselves, it's, they're still being self-centered. Mm. They're, still, they're still identifying everything that's happening with them and their worthiness and, and things like that. Um, 
And at the same time, you'll notice that this person will be easily threatened. So um, uh, if you find yourself agreeing with how their, their negative assessment of themselves, you'll see uh, uh, that that kind of those defense mechanisms, the defense of the image the, uh, of themselves coming in. So a lot of this we were discussing before, a lot of this is just, some of it is just if it's not, um, um, you know, harmful. So some of it's just normal behavior yes. for people, right? The need for affirmation. Yeah. Um, the um, self-deprecating that can be a form of, you know, trying to hook someone into affirming you, right? Um, that could all be very normal. But what you're identifying is that I found so fascinating is this notion you just um, you highlighted as well about the emptiness of the person, right? Mm. So, um, in the myth of Narcissus, yeah. it's it's not that Narcissus is um, sitting there looking at himself, going, "Look how pretty I am," yeah. right? It's that he's fallen in love with an image, yeah. right? And the image itself is quite empty. Yeah. And so then you're saying that the Narcissus, what they do to fill that emptiness within themselves, they rely on continual affirmation or yep. continual validation or yep. um or or could i say something like not even just the validation but they rely on um seeing everyone as sort of instrumental to or um simply part of their own story yep. right so um you know augustine actually has this point mm. right where he says loving another person because they are destined for God mm. is almost like a uh, antidote to narcissism yeah. because then you don't see them as entirely wrapped up into your own narrative, yeah. right? So remember that passage in Confessions, he talks mm. about, um, you know, um, being overly sad that somebody died or yeah, something, yeah, being overly yeah. sad for your friend, right? Because you're wrapping them up into your own story because yeah. there is no there is no real story that you have yeah. other than sort of... Um, weaving people into this validation of you. Or- yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the myth of the narcissist is a fascinating one because uh, again it it gets the heart of what we're meaning when we talk about narcissism. So if Nar- uh, if narcissus uh truly loved himself or truly had an exaggerated love of self, he would have taken care of his bodily existence. But the story is one where the image that he sees of himself is the important thing so much so that he denies his real self. He denies his actual um, existence. And so he ends up fading away into nothing. He becomes a, a flower, I think, in, in, in the story. And that's a fascinating story. And, and I think that tells us, teaches us something really important about narcissism. That is that there's something pitiable about the narcissist. That is that the, that the grandiosity, um, even the, the harm that they cause other people is coming from a, a place where... There is an emptiness that needs to be filled desperately by anything and everyone, um, and that's at, uh, that's the core of the narcissistic that the narcissist kind of tragedy, and it's lit, it's, it's tragedy in the sense that um, it's never going to be enough. And I, I suppose the other core character, and and I, I suppose people that write really well about this is actually Tolkien is really fantastic about talking about narcissism and the hollowness and the emptiness inside people and creating these pitiable figures who lose their sense of self um, uh, uh, through investment of the self in something else. So Gollum is an example of that. He identifies with the ring and he has no self left and he can't even use the singular pronoun um, anymore. He has to call himself we uh, because he has no uh, I anymore. There's there's also a beautiful... um, depiction in the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, where one of the devils in the screw tape letters is is raging because he's so he's raging at the idea 
he's been caught in, in heresy by by claiming that God is loving, and and the official doctrine of hell is that God can't really love because love is impossible because um, all that exists is self interest. Um, and he's raging at the mystery that he can't solve of why God is the way he is, because there must be some hidden motivation. And he says at that point, it seems that um, he is full and overflowing and we are empty and would be filled. Mm. Um, And I think that is such a brilliant description of divine love versus our emptiness as human beings. Mm. And this is something that's particularly um, exaggerated in the narcissist, that there's this deep need to draw, to, to leech, meaning of others. Right. So, one thing we've talked about before, and we did this when we looked at C.S. Lewis in a circle, um, or in a ring, wasn't it called? Yeah. Um, is how you encounter people who are like chameleons. Yes. Um, that they have no firm sense of themselves, mm. and so they become different persons for everyone they yeah. meet. So, they're seemingly agreeable for everyone, even when those agreeability is inconsistent between yeah conversation to conversation and so on, right? Um, so, this idea again that there's a certain emptiness that is filled by presentation, yeah. affect, or image, right? Yeah. Um, now, you've been reading about this in particular in the context of churches. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and and this is this is where it kind of gets heartbreaking because the the prevalence of narcissism is, is much higher among um, clergy. Um, there's one study that I heard about um, yesterday, actually, a uh, Canadian study that suggested that narcissistic personality disorder was four to 500 times more prevalent amongst clergy, um, which is absolutely tragic. And the more stories that you hear of people's um, toxic experiences of church, um, the more you see that there is this narcissistic streak. And so I should, I haven't, uh, you'll have to forgive me, I haven't mentioned the book that I'm getting much of this um, stuff out of. There's a great book by an author, counselor pastor called Chuck DeGroat. Um, he has a book called When Narcissism Comes to Church. Um, and he, he um, I've, and I thoroughly recommend it for anybody interested in the in the topic. He, um, one of his first jobs out of seminary was um, offering psychometric evaluations for potential church planters. Um, and he talked, he talks about how often um, un, unknowingly um, the church looks for narcissists. It, it unconsciously uh, is biased towards narcissists in its leaders um, because of um, a lot of the, the traits that we associate with positivity. So, and we might we might just say that these people are convicted, that they're charismatic, mm. um, and all these things. Mm. But um, the, uh, and he talks about some really traumatic experiences for himself early on, uh, where he um, he interviewed. And he and uh, and it turns out church planters are the worst um, narcissists apparently, um, and I I guess we could imagine why that might be. Um, but uh, he talked about these experiences of interviewing these people where it was really clear from the psychometric data he got back that this person was well along the narcissistic um, spectrum, uh, but no one would believe him. No one would believe that there's a problem, uh, and he was forced by his organisation to clear the person. And then a year later, it turns out that he's abusing his wife, that he's had multiple affairs, yada yada yada. And this is a pattern that's repeated over and over. That people can't see that what what we take it to be as gifts in leadership also have this horrendous shadow, which often is this concealed this concealed lack of empathy. This this um, Using of people. Um, so, what kind of what kind of things are, um, you know, are sort of indicative, or what kind of things are typical? So he, um, uh, Chuck DeGroote talks about 
um, uh, a kind of list of narcissistic traits in Christian leaders. Uh, and he gets, uh, uh, I think, six of them he gets uh, from another theorist and he comes up with four himself. Uh, but he, he, and I'll just list them off here and see if they, they're familiar for you at all. Mm. Uh, so first of all, all decision-making centers on them. Two, in, uh, secondly, impatience or lack of ability to listen to others. Three, delegating without giving proper authority or with too many limitations. Mm. Uh, feelings of entitlement, feeling threatened or intimidated by other talented staff. And he has some horrible stories about that where um, yeah, people are treated horrendously just because they are threatening the status of the head pastor, uh, needing to be the best and brightest in the room. Uh, in and then he, these are his final four, and I think these are actually the more interesting ones, inconsistency and impulsiveness. And he ties that with that phenomenon that you're talking about, Joel, before of that being chameleon, never never being able to commit to one particular set of ideas or mm. things like that um, because the, the integrity of those things aren't what matters. What matters to the narcissist is the image, the, the persona. Um Praising and withdrawing is another one. So, um, and this can be a really confusing experience for a lot of parishioners where one day you'll just find yourself in the bad books of a pastor and not really knowing why. Um, but in the past, they would have been full of praise for you. Yeah, in, intimidation of others, which is pretty straightforward. And then finally, and I think this is, I think the most interesting one, f what he calls phonerability. Okay, can we just pause on that? Because yep. I think it is really interesting, phonerability, which is a, <laughs> a difficult tongue twister to say. I just want to, just the ones you've just listed, mm. I think they're fascinating. I mean, I think we've both encountered this. You know, mm. we've spent, I've spent 37 years in churches, mm. right? Um, and you've spent 30, 20 or whatever, with some yep. spots in between. But, um, you know, even just taking the idea of feeling threatened. Mm. or needing to be best and brightest in the room. It's something that we often lament mm. is when you encounter uh, leaders in churches who yeah. um, see their job as to um, be better than you at what you do. Yeah, <laughs> or something, that's right. right? Yeah. As opposed to being, you know, in your and my context, right, mm. being a pastor who can get alongside us and say, you know, stop being a dick yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or something like this. Yeah. Someone who actually builds trust that they can actually feed into your life and yeah. this sort of thing. They can yeah. be pastoral. Yeah. Instead, it turns into a weird competition. And yeah. it's a competition where you just don't know what the purpose of it is, right? You yeah. didn't you didn't ever intend a competition. It's just this. And, and so that has a kind of, you know, uh, that often has that deep sort of masculine quality to it, right? Mm. Um, but I think this this plays out undoubtedly differently in different contexts. So one thing when you're reading that list, I keep thinking is, say, if you're in a um, a more parish context mm. in which there is a sense of more threefold ministry and sort of there is a bishop and it's you know and you're a priest and you serve in some ways quite a functional role, mm. right, to minister in the sacraments to see to the sick and so on. Some way that role voc that role yeah. occupation can actually constrain what you're doing, That's right? right. Yeah. So you don't become the center of everything you don't become all decision making centers on you yep. because you have a particular priestly function for yeah. example um whereas in you know when i grew up in the context of pentecostals and so on as i said it was the big man on campus mentality yeah. right because you are the church yeah the local church is you and all authority runs through this one person yeah and you can think the same thing then it's not just a um you know conservative male headship sort of mm. uh paradigm although i think that certainly feeds into it, mm. right? There's also just this happens in sort of more progressive contexts or 
places where they want to be church planters or um, emerging church contexts, right, where it is kind of the creative or the social justice advocate or something yeah. that becomes the sort of site of power, yeah. right? The site of authority, the site where the real conversation takes place and all things must run through them and their charismatic claims, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think this, I, I don't think, I think um, that this is not something that is uh, uh, limited to one particular segment, yeah. but there are sort of, I think, ways of understanding, say, leadership and priestly vocation that actually could constrain these sorts of things as yeah. well. Anyway, so that that's what I was thinking so, as so, you go. And I think yeah. we, we, I, we had a conversation on a previous iteration of the podcast about um, clericalism in the in the low church, yeah. that the low church is more clerical than the high church, mm. which is kind of seemingly paradoxical mm. because the the in the high church, the priest has a priestly function, mm. um, uh, whereas... Uh, in whereas it's the it's the function that the priest performs in the high church which is significant, not necessarily the priest themselves. And of course, you want priests that embody Christian virtue and things like that, um, and everybody wants that. But the significant thing in the high church is much more that function that the person is performing. Whereas um, if you lose, if you strip away the liturgical function of the the priest and you just have the personality. Then the personality is what matters, mm. um, and uh, and that is where you have this almost um, a theologically sanctified narcissism, mm. uh, and that that's probably too far. There's you know that I, that's probably going way too far. In, well, no, in it a, can in happen, right? But it's it, not. It's, it's not it's something that I would say might feed it, a culture of yeah, ecclesial the point narcissism. Is it, it can give rise to this, right? Yeah. So I think we can we can explore that a little bit more by thinking about the vocation of a person, right? Mm. And how our modern culture works completely against that notion yeah. that you have a vocation or a certain sense of um, firm foundation and what you're actually doing. Yeah. Now, but before we go to that, and I, I think we're going to go over time, yeah. but but I don't care because I think this is just a really interesting topic and we should just hash it out, right? Mm. Um, so, phonerability. Yep. So, vulnerability coming from a foe and vulnerability. Yeah. It's a fake version of vulnerability that he that he's identifying. Um, he has he has a kind of, this is Chuck DeGroote I'm talking about, he has a couple of uses of this term. So, one of them is a vulnerable pastor will be a pastor that can admit faults um, and even um, conjure up uh, the outward expression of lament through. They can conjure up tips tears in their sermons and things like that. But they'll never admit fault to anything specific. They'll admit fault to wrongdoing generally or perhaps I was an overbearing husband when in actual fact he was beating the hell out of his wife. That's that's what he means. But he'll never say, I hit my wife. He'll say, you know, I was overbearing or, you know, um, or they'll allude to a general sense of total depravity, uh, for example, that we're all susceptible to sin and he'll just, you know, he'll really own that, but never a specific thing. Um, and uh, this, I find this very interesting. So at the heart of um, narcissism is this deep shame and shame uh, is different to guilt. Uh, shame is a fear that the, that your, your social, um, your social sources of self are threatened. That is, the mask that you present, that the persona that you present to the public is being um, defaced. Mm. Um, that is the sense of shame. Shame is an external experience, whereas guilt is an internal one. 
guilt is the feeling that you have not lived up to your understanding of the good or your moral duties and things like that. The narcissist has very little sense of guilt. They'll have an incredible amount of shame though. And most of their activity is motivated by shame. That is their fear that others will not take them seriously or that others will think less of them. Um, that's what motivated. Or it could be fear of being found out. So they'll mistake that. You might mistake that for guilt. But the fear of being found out is not the, the fear of, um, not the lament over a wrongdoing you've actually done. It's, it's the, the, the expectation that all of a sudden you'll be defaced in front of other people. Um, and so a vulnerable person will will never take responsibility for a specific thing. And actually the most unbearable thing for a narcissist is for you to say, you have done this to me and I felt like that. The response that you'll usually get from a narcissist to that is an explosion of rage um, because that fragile persona that is being presented out, which there is their entire source of meaning and self is being threatened and they'll respond to that with a defensive mm. um, uh, response or they'll go on the attack. And I'll say, you th- you know, that action was justified because of this or you're like this sometimes. Um, the, the hardest thing for a narcissist to do is to listen to criticism. And then even harder to say, I've heard this criticism and this is what you've been saying mm. and I am sorry for that. So I, this is fascinating, but, and, 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 you know, again, it's, I mean, I'm sure people are listening to this and, and. <laughs> maybe reevaluating certain contexts and being in sort, right? But but can I take it? Can I can I ask? Does it go if it can go a step further? So you're saying the um they they won't accept responsibility for particular actions and yep. will react in this rage like what manner to criticism and so on. Mm-hmm. But that vulnerability, I think, does it does it serve another function as well in which um. The, the sort of the uh, projection of vulnerability mm. or the projection of some sort of um, a commitment to an ideal of vulnerability yep. is also in itself a kind of rhetorical move to make yourself again the center. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you see this actually. So, again, this is a fascinating thing because it's not just something that, you know, you could take Dave's description and think this is something we see, especially from, say, conservative ministers mm. who see themselves as the fount of all power yep. in the local autonomous church sort of thing, yep. right? Um, but actually, I think you see this a lot in so called, you know, progressive circles in which somebody will um, disavow their privilege. Yes. Yeah. Right, they'll disavow their privilege by saying, "I'm, you know, I have these following identity markers, and isn't this really bad? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm part of the structural injustice or something yeah. like that, right? And you know, and there's something, you know, okay, sure, but then you kind of go, what's what's going on there yeah. a little bit? And in some sometimes it seems like the person is disavowing such things mm. in a generalized sense yep. in order to make them and, and, and in doing so not necessarily in order or, although at least not consciously but in doing so they make themselves the sort of center of that conversation that's right. right that's right yeah and so like it's kind of like it's it's like it's like the um training wheels for being a activist yeah <laughs> you yeah. have to show these things in order to do this and this is part of your sort of, you know, induction process as a Padawan to really raise to the heights of, yeah. you know, being the center of this thing. Yeah. And I and uh, progressive circles are far from immune from narcissism. And I think for for those kinds of reasons, and they'll be in the in in. You've the, said it to me. Sorry, you've said it to me. Zizek has this point about disavowal. Yeah. What is it? So Zizek talks about it's a Freudian concept of disavowal, where where you you disavow the thing 
um, in order uh, to make room for your pursuit of it. Yeah. Um, and he he's critic he's critical of white liberals um, being like this in in especially in the United States, uh, where they'll always talk about white privilege uh, and in disavowing it, it's almost this rich cleansing ritual that they can do to then kind of pursue the fruits of their privilege. Mm. Um, and I think a similar thing happens, uh, you know, people have, have cottoned onto it better these days, but I think of like International Women's Day on, on social media and it'll just all of a sudden f- be filled up with male progressives talking about how wonderful women's empowerment is um, and uh, you'll have progressive Christian uh, male leaders doing doing the same thing, be, being effuse in their kind of um, gestures towards feminist ideals and stuff like that. Whereas in actual fact, perhaps the better thing to do is just to create a day where you just shut up and you're not the centre of attention. Yeah, at worst, you, <laughs> you'd see like the, the um, person who puts forward a photo of them yeah. surrounded by, you know, <laughs> all, all these women. women. <laughs> yeah. and look how great I am at, at facilitating and supporting women, you yeah. know. And it's like... It's, yeah, we want to do yeah. that. Fem- like feminism, TM. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, and and so and that I think that's a that, that's another form of it where yeah, disavowal that is um, can can both be a, just turn into a type of brand for you, mm. um, but it can also be function the way that total depravity might it, for a Calvinist, where um, and and this is this is a distortion distorted application of that doctrine, I think. Where a Calvinist, and I've been this Calvinist, where you kind of go, well, we're all Dave's Calvin- Dave's <laughs> Calvinist confessions. <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't really, I don't see myself as a Calvinist anymore. Um, but I, as a younger man, I, I mean, could, you're pretty untethered, really. I, I am untethered. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I, we are all worthy of eternal damnation for our wrongdoing, and any one sin makes us worthy of death. And so what does this particular wrongdoing that I've just do, uh, done or I, I intend to do, what does it matter um, if, if that is the, the ontological nature of all human action uh, is, is evil? Why do I care about my action? The same thing could happen with concepts like privilege or racism or, or structural racism, structural violence and things like that. Um, if, if you use that to short circuit your assessment of particular moral actions that you do, that's a real problem, all right? Mm. Um, and and by so a, a slogan might be you might have a slogan like no ethical consumption under capitalism, which is a coherent statement, and you can see un, you can understand where that's coming from. But if you use that to say the world's so stuffed up that I'm not going to actually put much work in and thought into my particular actions, that's that seems to be a, a, a significant problem. And so there, I think you have a political application of the theological notion of total depravity mm. um, that is. Um, it's not worth even trying to do good. So I think a lot of people may, uh, there may be people who do that. I think more more people would be more in that camp of that. I, I, the dynamic I find interesting there is that in making the disavowal or making the statement, you make yourself the center of the conversation, right? Mm. And I think that goes back to your point about, it, it becomes about not so much about there's a self that's trying to cultivate, say, some mm. integral understanding of the world or whatever. It's it's more about how do I present things to the world to cultivate this image through like aesthetics, right, mm. or through um, words used in a way, the pragmatic way, or whatever. Now, um, this then that to me leads us into, and this is this 
should be our final bit piece of discussion here about how, you know, we've been discussing narcissism and then how it can be rooted in church context and so on. Um, but it seems just a general thing as mm. well. Like you could, um, to take it into our theopolitical imagination mm. sort of context for politics, culture, and so on, you could think of narcissism as partly a lens for um, thinking about our cultural. Yes. Or, or why, why is narcissism um, quite prevalent? Well, it's not just formed out of people having their own private problems, yes. but is actually formed yep. through culture and through yeah. narrative and so on. And and there's actually evidence to suggest that narcissist, narcissism has increased um, st- uh, annually since the 1970s. For, since 1970, um, there's been a, um, an increasing diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. And so that asks, that big kind of doesn't beg the question it, it it demands an answer to the question yeah which is which is what? to say what well like why why is that the yeah. like what i mean this is highly speculative yes. now yeah but you know there's probably yeah. like some and and so i would suggest that the answer would lie in um what cultural forces are at play that that deny the possibility of cultivating an interiority right so if at the heart of narcissism is 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 this um this fundamental lack of self, um, what cultural forces lend itself to that? And I think things like the demand for instant gratification, which, uh, you know, boomed in the 1970s and kind of came to full fruition perhaps in the 1980s, um, where where it, um, uh, cultivation of self-restraint uh, went from f- within decades of being seen as a virtue to being seen as a vice. Um, perhaps that has something to do with the the generation of a atmosphere where kind of the space and peace necessary to cultivate itself was absent. Uh, so I, th- I think that's perhaps part of it. Part of it is I think um, social atomization is a, is a big part of it. So um, just breakdown in relationships, breakdowns of families, but also breakdown in significant meaningful relationships and the investment of all social needs into a particular romantic partner. I, I think um, that paradoxically leads to a loss of sense of self because we derive our sense of self communally. That is, we require others to reinforce who we are to, to the self. And the more we are cut off from um, from other people, the more we lose our sense of identity. Well, and, and probably even I'd go maybe a step further and to um, draw from Simone Weil, who we're going to discuss mm. later, you know, and say actually – that sense of self may be fundamentally rooted in a sense of obligation or duty, right? Mm. So you find your sense of self in your gift or talent or contribution to something other than yourself, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so if you see the life of the interiority or lack thereof as cultivating the self, yep. then there's sort of a paradoxical problem because you won't actually cultivate yourself. You'll be instead focused on this. I don't know, infinite presentation. So, or, 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 you know, Charles Taylor talking about Malaise's modernity, about mm. how everything feels equally permissible, possible and malleable yeah. and therefore equally arbitrary, right? Yeah. That it doesn't matter. And so it sort of turns into this pastiche or bricolage of mm. identities in the quest for an authentic self. I, I, I think um, I think this as well has just, you know, very much structural features around labor. Mm. Um, so I'm incredibly skeptical uh, when you see someone's, 
social media profile saying that they're everything under the sun. You know, mm. they're a blogger, they're a podcaster, they're an academic, they're a um, visionary activist, they're a this, they're a this. And it just makes me think like, you know, pick a lane. Um, because each of those things may require certain disciplined um, attention, mm. right? And so it then turns into instead you, you become this bricolage in which you're sort of cobbling together multiple things so that you can present multiple personas in different contexts, right? Mm. Or, or even so that you can sort of um, occupy the space of those multiple places, right? You become the center mm. of everything then. Um, now, I think, though, that that's cultivated by these various things, but it's also cultivated by the very real practices of how we have labor now. So, mm. precarious work, for yeah. example. Rootlessness. Means, sorry? So, rootlessness. So, you don't, you don't, right. you're not committed to a, a, a community right. that is a workplace. Right. Um, so, that you can, you can re-engineer the self to set. To well, you, and you have to in some, yeah. and in fact, you're encouraged to, we're constantly told we have to be agile and yeah. that people coming through in this generation below us will have, I don't know, what do they say? 10 jobs or mm. more, more than this. Yeah. I don't know what the figures are yeah. over the course of their life. And so you're supposed to actually be adaptable, in which case it means your labor becomes sort of fungible, right? Mm. You're just being used at service of various things. And then um, rather than, you know, cultivating a good. Yeah. And then for yourself, that means how do you then interpret that? Well, you interpret that as saying, I have to cultivate a presentation mm. of me. I don't have to think about what is the good I'm producing, mm. but my job as a worker is now to create like a yep. perpetual CV yep. <laughs> or a perpetual resume, right? A perpetual yep. form of presentation to people. So I think there's just real problems there that arise from labor or just take, you know, everyone in their workplace now has to put has to show outputs um you know and you have to constantly go through metrics or measuring in which you're assessed based on these various things and so a lot of our jobs now consist in telling people how great we are yeah that's (laughs) right right. yeah and so i think you know in academia but i think this is outside of this as well so you see a lot now of um academics coming through Mm. you know from my generation onwards right this is how we experience academia for example um and and a lot of people resist it in the sense that they see that this has real problematic features but actually some people that's all they've ever known and so this becomes like the thing itself right the constant act of self-presentation yeah I guess we we should probably wrap it up. We There's should. so much more we could say. Maybe we'll return to this. Well, topic I should just say, I want, no, let me just actually, because it goes back to, you know, what you're doing and so on. So let me, mm. let me just, so um, <laughs> maybe this is too much and you could put it, you could put it to one side if you want, but it, ma- it did make me think, what, what should you do if you encounter this? Mm. You know, what should you do? Is the salute? Is the idea just no? You you actually need to get out. You need to get away from those relationships. Yeah. That's the point. And then the other one is if you know, like I read through, I hear this sort of thing you think, and I say, you know, these are things that I have to resist in my daily life, mm. right? Um, especially in an academic world, this idea that you have to, you know, be yeah. the center of the conversation. You have to be competitive, and you use other people to sort of reflectively yeah. pass glory onto you, or whatever. All these various things that academic culture and life can cultivate. And mm. so there's sort of two questions there, right? One is about you encounter this, you're in that sort of environment where somebody's like this. And the other one is about you are resisting this or you're, you know, you're subject to it. I mean, those maybe are two far too big questions to just throw at you <laughs> at the very end. Are, are you talking about the church context or your academic context? Well, no, okay, let's just take the church context then. Okay, okay so, so in the church context. You know, I'm asking Councillor Dave. <laughs> Councillor, if, if, you, if you are a, an individual within a parish, um, I think 
um, and you have a someone that is more and more clear is a malignant narcissist, if you don't have any agency to make change, and you probably won't, um, I think you need to probably leave um, that church uh, because I think you'll probably have experienced psychological damage from that leader that you're unaware of and it might take years to process. Um, uh, And um, there's a, there's a general sense of unreality that is de- developed through sitting under the leadership of a narcissist, which we might call gaslighting um, at times. And so I, I would say part of it is leave. If you're involved in leadership and there's a, a narcissist, I mean, um, if you're in, in a denominational structure um, like that has bishops, uh, you know, in the ideal world, you would be able to talk to someone like a bishop. No, well, that this, I think is, but, is a fundamental point, this right? Is a, this Actual is a, accountability. There's a problem. But unfortunately, like I'm, I'm very cynical about the possibility of change here because um, denominational structures, church structures are very um, uh, susceptible to grooming from narcissists uh, and narcissists are very good at playing on the, the sense of self-importance of uh, institutions and things like that. So it's really hard to make a difference. And another really uh, interesting thing in de Groot's book is about how even when you get rid of the narcissist, uh, DeGroote thinks that you can have narcissistic church structures and he, he has a brilliant account of how there's vulnerable and grandiose versions of this, um, which I wish I had time to go into. But even uh, it, it's really wrong to think if I just get rid of that narcissistic leader um, that everything will go back to normal because it the church ends up functioning like a family system where that narcissism fulfilled a function <laughs> Um, and that will will have its tendrils in everything that happens, and it requires a a, a lot of deep deep thinking, um, and that's why that's happened recently. I think um, where um, I think uh, is it okay to just say Mark Driscoll? <laughs> Mark Driscoll was a I think someone that people identified as a narcissistic bully mm. um, quite uh, significantly. Um, and there's been real problems thinking that if we just replace that person that the church life will return to normal because what seems to happen is it's like how uh, parts, part, people who have had abusive partners throughout their life end up finding another abusive partner uh, to partner with. Churches do the same thing mm. um, and it requires some deep theological um, and spiritual soul, like soul searching. Um, so my answer is like be, be cynical. Like, be very, very cynical about your capacity to affect to affect change in a in a uh, church structure um, poisoned by narcissism. Hmm. Um, yeah. So um, that brings us to the end. That was a really bleak conversation. <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> I thought it was really interesting. The last point is very bleak, yeah. but you know, if that's the reality, that's the reality. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, maybe maybe I'll, um, I'll 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 share some different resources on our social media about other approaches because it's I, I think I, I want to leave it with something more positive than just leave and there's no hope. <laughs> but anyway, no, you're also talking about you you fundamentally there's an element of care there, right? Yes. As in, you know, you need to yeah be mm. careful and care for yes yourself and your relationships. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, speaking of narcissism, please like us on Facebook. Please. <laughs> uh, goodness knows what we'll do if you don't. Uh, um, so, and also uh, follow this, us on Twitter. This smugness doesn't run on its own <laughs> engine. Um, 
yeah, follow us on Twitter. You can find us at UCAT, that's E-U-C-A-T underscore podcast on Twitter. Uh, please drop us a review um, and share us around with your friends. That'd be really fantastic. Um, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Until then, see ya. Bye.